Hi, I'm Shona. And I'm Craig. And this is London by Lockdown, a travel podcast about falling in love with the new city in strange times, remaining curious and open, enjoying everyday discoveries and making it work. So it's early March and staring out the window, I can see cherry blossom and the days are getting longer, which is very exciting. It is. And it happened really quickly too. So quickly. Yeah. yeah. The other thing is we also saw snow for a few days. <laughs> so that snow. was exciting. Yeah, yeah. We're still in lockdown, but COVID cases are down and something like 22 million people have had their first dose of the vaccine, which is, I think, about a third of the population. That just means it's finally possible to imagine roaming around, making friends, maybe going to a cafe, running into people. Chatting to someone at a bus stop. Yeah, exactly, because it's been 12 months under restrictions. As we're thinking about one day being able to get out and about, we've been having lots of chats about London, England in general, about how the picture you have in your head and the common image about this place is really out of step with what it's like to live here. I think there's an element of that wherever you are, but it feels particularly stark here. Yeah, like the impression I had compared to what I'm seeing, building an accurate map of a place, to do that you need to capture all the angles, you need to hear all the voices, all the stories and all the experiences. There's also some really live discussions which I just completely wasn't aware of. One is about how entire populations have been written out of the history of England, the history of Britain, going back hundreds of years. And there's a new generation of historians who are correcting that and telling the story of Black Britain in particular. And we see this with the Windrush generation. People were urged to come from the Caribbean, who were British subjects, to help rebuild Britain after World War II. And one example of how they did that was they were key in building and establishing the beloved NHS. And there's another side to the Windrush story. In recent years, people who'd lived here for decades were suddenly being deported. I don't have all of that story, but from what I can gather, for no good reason. As an outsider, it feels like this is a consequence of what can happen when you only have one type of national story and certain voices aren't heard, which means that they can't be valued and celebrated. Yeah, and you know, like we can't know where we are, where we're going or where we could be if the map that we've got or the map we're being given is inaccurate or incomplete. And that comes out of hearing certain voices over and over again while others are being left out. You also miss out on some great stories. So in honour of that... Oh, brilliant segue, Craig. Today's episode's part of a collaboration with, speaking volumes, your local arena and Bocas Lit Fest. Today we're hearing from three authors of modern classics in British literature. Jacqueline Roy is the author of The Fat Lady Sings. Steve Martin, who writes as S.I. Martin, is the author of Incomparable World. And Nicola Williams is the author of Without Prejudice. In The Fat Lady Sings... We meet two black British women in a psychiatric unit who become fast friends. Then Incomparable World transports us back to Georgian London. And finally, Without Prejudice is a 1990s legal thriller set in London with a young black female barrister protagonist. 
We're going to look through the eyes of the authors and their books, and we're going to be led through three really different stories of the city. Welcome to episode 13, Drawing a Better Map. Gloria is leaving the ward. She's creeping through the door as the last nurse on the early shift reports for duty. I put my purse in my pocket and I follow her. She moves stealthily, looking out for signs of pursuit. She sees me, but there's no acknowledgement. She's too intent on getting out. She goes down some steps and takes a hidden corridor, one that winds along the basement. We pass yards of piping and the clanking drowns the tapping of our feet. It's hot down here and the musty air catches in my throat. No sign of anyone but us. In the furthest corner, barely visible, there is another staircase. We climb and surface through the last exit, out. We are dazzled by the winter sun. Blinking, breathless, we stand still for just a moment. Then Gloria moves on. I pick up speed and soon we are walking side by side. Now we are behind the hospital. The red brick building towers round us. They're demolishing the walkways, swinging demolition balls, cranes, the crash of rubble as it tumbles round us, dust thickly rising. I begin to cough. Gloria raises a hand to silence me. We must be careful not to draw attention to ourselves. It is as if our craziness is visible, as if the world can tell with just a look. was written in the late 1990s and one of the reasons for that was I went to a black writers conference and one of the speakers said that he didn't know a single person of his generation and he was roughly my age who hadn't been through either the mental health system or the prison system and he said to the conference where are the books that speak about those experiences And it was at that point that I thought it would be really important to write the book because I'd been through the mental health system myself as a teenager. It had really coloured my way of seeing the world because the mental health system, certainly in in the 1970s when I was in it, was very much, I think, about containment and control. I went to a conference. One of the speakers, who was from a major publishing house, said that as an actual policy, so this isn't just through some kind of error or neglect, but as an actual policy, they didn't publish black British writers. They said there wasn't a market for them. And this was the main publisher of world literature. They said they published writing from the Caribbean, writing from Africa, writing from the Indian subcontinent. But that was where their market was, and there was no market for black British writing. Implicit in the idea that black British writers weren't being published was the idea that black people didn't actually belong in Britain, that we were kind of a temporary presence, and that that with luck, we'd disappear eventually. And of course, we're not a temporary presence. 
the fiction articulates that. It says, we are black British. We're very much here to stay. When I was growing up in the 1950s and 60s, all the books that I read were about white middle-class people. This continued way up until um, the 1980s. And for me, it was a huge absence not to see myself reflected in literature. Because if you can't see yourself, you become invisible. And there's a sense conveyed to you that your life doesn't matter and black lives don't matter. I think the main thing about the book that I'd like people to take from it is around the idea of voice and silence, that it is possible to talk about really complex and difficult things in fiction because the novel addresses things like sexual orientation. The main character is a lesbian. It talks about dysfunctional black families and that's been a really difficult area I think for writing partly because there's a fear I think in black communities that if we talk about these things we, we're going to reinforce all the negative stereotypes of us but what that fear does is actually silence us even further so it's really important to give voice to the same range of experiences that white literature has always been able to talk about. One of the things that has happened over the years, I think, is that there's been a sense conveyed that there's no such thing as black British writing. Certainly in the 80s, and right up, I guess, to, to the mid-90s, it was very difficult for a black writer to be published. It gives the impression that there weren't actually black people living and working in Britain, and that's absolutely not the case. Yeah, and it's, um, it's very much about voice and silence. Who has the right to speak? London, 29th of May, 1786. Buckram stood in a puddle outside the charioteer and listened to the shouts and laughter of several black people in the big smoky room. The alehouse was full this evening, and through a grimy, rain-streaked window, he watched his old begging mentor, Georgie George, standing in front of the fire, opening and closing his shabby frock coat every few seconds. There was Henry Prince, the boxer, looking fatter and dressing much better, looking prosperous, in fact. Two men, one black, one white, dressed as women, were leaning against the bar, screaming for drinks. The publican, Offaly Michael, was still there, bullying staff and trying to keep order. It had been two years since Buckram had taken a drink in a boozing ken. He studied familiar faces, jabbering wildly under powdered wigs and all the bejeweled, ill-painted women in laundered clothes and polished buckle shoes. Then he caught his own reflection in the green-tinged pane and flinched away before the image of a shivering, grey-bearded black ogre with matted hair and greasy clothes could settle too solidly. He glanced over his shoulder at the cramped tenements of Bridges Street. They looked seedy and sad like poorly baked loaves left in a cold, grimy oven. Even from the street he could smell the sour stench that told of generations of uncleanliness. Starving cadgers, drunken whores staggered from one tavern to another. They huddled, bickering at the mouths of alleys and courtyards. Groups of strangers gathered under awnings and talked about the weather. The sky rumbled fitfully. Pack dogs sniffed his heels, and Buckram felt abandoned at the mercy of an English god. 
incomparable world is set in Georgian London, which obsesses me. And I just really wanted to explore its parallels to our own period and the ways in which it diverges markedly from our own. And also just to play with my obsession with a human potential between the Georgian period and uh, the present day. What can we do now that they can't? What were they capable of, which we have lost? Which is one of the main directions that I write to. I wanted, first of all, to share on a very nerdy level my excitement about 18th century London, this explosion in this particular part of the planet of taste, ideas, notions about humanity. Everything about this period was just full of newness compared to periods before and after. It's also a very new time in the British identity. It's extraordinarily permissive, deeply vulgar, as well as being extremely refined. And into all of this, you see non-white communities forging identities. What I really wanted the readers to come away with was this sort of sense of both the very strange and the very familiar. Amongst the known, I wanted to put the unknown or the unexpected. What is more often the case is that historical fiction just confirms biases. It's seen as a place to draw comfort from because you know, it's a lot of very bucolic, stratified society and hierarchies, which for a lot of readers traditionally draw strength from historical fiction. I wanted to um, upset that somewhat by having non-white characters and looking at the real life of the period, which is uh, close to anarchy. The impact of forgetting histories is that the habit of questioning history and given narratives is never developed. And I think that's really, really important. I grew up in Middle England, in fact, a fairly rural Middle England. I was always trying to find a way, I think, to say that, yeah, this is a valid way of being, growing up in a period where the black experience is always expressed as being exclusively city-bound, particularly London-centric. Even though I'm a Londoner myself, that's not the experience that I grew up with. My dad wanted to recreate the Antigua that he grew up in. We ended up living in the shires with uh, chickens and rabbits and always had loads of dogs running about. Yeah, that was my experience. And I um, loved lots of aspects of it, hated others. That whole breadth of experience, whenever I see non-stereotypical, I would say, black experiences and lives, then uh, that's what really fascinates me. Anyone who knows me will know that I am the ultimate evangelist for Robert Wedderburn. And Robert Wedderburn was a Jamaican of mixed background who was fathered by a plantation owner or an owner of other human beings. And one of those women whose lives he owned, he came to London as a young man and became a radical and a general firebrand. He's unique, I think, because he was a true revolutionary. He was as well somewhat mad, but he was a true revolutionary, unyielding, and he was also a publisher. 
prolific publisher of all sorts of scurrilous screeds and tracts, including the Axlade to the Root, which in 1819, in its first issue, first cover page, half of it was in uh, Patois, Jamaican Patois. And yes, he was just totally consumed by racial and class politics, and he was unyielding in his revolutionary fervor. There's a degree of comfort, which is another real <laughs> issue or bone of contention. There's a degree of comfort that many people have with these histories being overlooked rather than forgotten. People seem to be very comfortable with the idea that histories of black people are always happening somewhere else and at some other time. Stories matter because that's a part of what it means to be human to describe oneself, to try to describe the world, to make sense of things, particularly non-white communities, have to be foremost in those practices of self-description, because if we don't describe ourselves, we will be described by others. And in the absence of our own self-descriptions, then we'll be uh, drowning in the other identities that have been foisted upon us. So yeah, who do we think we are? And why do we think we are this way? Clive O. Marshall was seated at a corner table, which was set somewhat apart from the others, presumably for privacy. From a distance, he appeared just as he did in the newspapers. As Lee walked across the room towards him, he stood up and she could see he was over six foot, taller than she expected. When she came face to face with him, she had to concede that, on any view, his photographs didn't do him justice. He looked Italian, except for his eyes, which were such a startling blue-green that Lee wondered if he wore contacts. He was wearing a collarless shirt under a suit so impeccably cut and fitted so well, it had to be handmade. I'm glad you were able to see me, Miss Mitchell. He had an anonymous transatlantic accent, the kind you would acquire if you were part of the international jet set. A waiter came to pull out her chair for her, but he waved them away and did it himself. Lee knew from her brief that he was 27 and therefore three years younger than she was, but he had the quiet confidence of someone 20 years older. Clearly he knew that where charm was concerned, it was the little gestures that counted. Lee made a mental note not to be disarmed by her client, now or in the future. She was impressed by the restaurant. Evidently, they were used to the famous and the infamous dining here. The Martian's presence did not cause the slightest frisson, either amongst the staff or the other diners. Brendan told me you're going abroad tomorrow, Lee said, as Clive signaled for a waiter. The movement was barely imperceptible, but it was enough to bring not one, but two waiters over to their table, one for each of them. Yes, I have a place in Miami on South Beach, but I suppose you already know that from the newspapers. It's about the only thing they've got right. He sounded rather resigned, as if being misrepresented in the press was something he had learned to tolerate by now. What will you have to drink? The wine list here is particularly good. Just tonic water for me, thanks. As you wish, I'll have a vodka tonic, he told his waiter, and both waiters disappeared as smoothly and silently as they had arrived. He had proved what she had always suspected was true, that this was a game, and that in choosing the time and place for their first meeting, he was making sure he had home court advantage. She was used to playing this game. I prefer conferences to be at my chambers, Mr. O'Martian. If you weren't going abroad, I would not have agreed to see you this evening. Even though you're my biggest client, you're not my only one. My other clients need my expertise as much as you do, even if they can't afford to pay for it. O'Martian looked taken aback, but only for a moment. Then he grinned. He had a very engaging grin. 
Well, Miss Mitchell, I do believe you're trying to put me in my place. It's been a long time since anyone has spoken to me like that. I don't doubt it, he said dryly. Is my money so abhorrent to you? Not at all. It buys my expertise, but it doesn't mean you get preferential treatment or that I'm at your beck and call. Brendan told me you were very forthright. What he actually said was that you had balls. Coming from him, I'll take that as a compliment. What else did he tell you? That everything in your background militated against you becoming a barrister. No connections, no money, the wrong sex for the job, certainly the wrong color. That you were a fighter. I need a fighter, Lee. It was the first time he had used her Christian name. What I wanted to do when I first wrote it, I suppose I wanted to write a book that I would be interested in reading and therefore I believed other people would be interested in it because it was going to depict a character that hadn't up until that time existed in British literature. A black female barrister who is the protagonist and the main engine, nothing in literature nor even police procedurals or legal dramas on television, that character didn't exist at all. You know, if there were black people in them at all, they were either like the best friend or the adjunct or something like that, or the villain. And I wanted to write something different, something real. A woman who's set within a family context, she has a boyfriend, she's got a mother she's close to, and not like this loner that nobody knows anything about. There was time when it was felt that black writers would only have a black audience. I would think that a legal thriller would have a very wide audience. First of all, people like this type of genre. And secondly, if lawyers read it, women read it, black people read it, that's a lot of people right there. In trying to be all things to all people, you can actually lose some authenticity. And I wanted to root it very much in something very authentic. So it's about the kind of contrast between the London in which Lee grew up in, which was the kind of Strivers Row, working class, largely black community, and the London in which she currently now lives since she's been a successful barrister and operates. That world is very different. That sort of sense of place and disconnection about two Londons, if you like, or even more fractured than that. I am very interested in that as a theme about a city that can have so many disparate parts of it and it can still be some colliding, some aligning, and it could all still be the same place. I always tell people Lee Mitchell isn't me. I'm not writing my autobiography. In terms of my lived experience, yeah, I mean, it was my lived experience led me to wanting to write this novel. I had a careers teacher who, even though I was doing A-levels, told me I should go and work in Woolworths. She told me that and I said, no, I didn't want to do that. And then at the end of my first year at university doing a degree, she saw me working in a now defunct store, <laughs> which will really show how old I am, a CNA. She saw me working in there in the summer and she came up to me literally and she said, you know, oh, I'm so glad that you found a job that befitted your skills. That's why she's named in this book. I didn't feel the need to hide that. Yeah, and when I told her that I was, you know, I was actually at the end of my first year in law school and I was sort of working here in the summer, she kind of got very red in the face and disappeared off to the ski section in CNA and was never seen from again. There are lots of hardships about being a black person in Britain, make no mistake. And those don't change just because you earn a bit more or because you have a profession. But there's a lot of joy in it too. You know, there's a joy of friendship, there's a joy of family, you know, all those things and just what it was like to be a young black barrister at the time that I wrote the book. Around about the time I was writing this book, I had both a civil and criminal practice. 
at that time, more black barristers practiced in crime than they did in general civil. I went to Sheffield to do a case and I walked into the robing room with my suit on and my robes. I was going to be up there for a whole week. And I walked in with everything and there were three or four white male barristers in there. And they were talking amongst each other because they clearly knew each other. And I walked in with my suit and everything. And one of them looked at me, he looked at me up and down. He said, this is the robing room, you know, are you lost? I mean, that was his automatic assumption was that I had absolutely no business being in there, even though I looked every bit the barrister that he was. I'm happy to say that I was against him in my trial and I beat him. So I was very happy about that. <laughs> Black male barrister that I know, he went to take instructions for a client in the cells at a magistrate's court. In those days, they used to actually put you in the cells with someone, which is actually not very safe, but uh, he did that. And he was pressing the buzzer to be let out and they wouldn't let him out. And the case was called on and they thought he'd gone off home. And it turned out they wouldn't let him out because they just thought he was black and his client was black and that they were both in the cells as criminals rather than one was taking instructions from the other. You hear about things like that, you don't forget them. That was so brilliant. I feel like I've just been transported out of our little one-bedroom flat. Yeah. Thank you so much to Jacqueline, Steve and Nicola for chatting with us. Now, their books are being reissued by Penguin as part of the Black Britain Writing Back series, alongside three other classics of Black British literature. So, we're going to have some links to all that. When you were chatting to Steve, you asked him as an archivist who was an awesome person from Black British history that we should really know about. And he started talking about Robert Weberborn. Robert Weberborn's autobiography is called The Horrors of Slavery. And Nicola also mentioned Alexandria Wilson, whose new book in black and white is all about what it's like to be a young black female barrister today. And it's a fascinating book not just for the nuance and the complexity in how it looks at the broken justice system, but also just learning about what barristers do all day. I had no idea. Thank you, of course, to Speaking Volumes, Lucy Hanna and Bocas Litfest. We have links to all their pages. And for the next few days, they have a brilliant doco online about Two-Tone, which was a 1970s and 80s English record label built around the music scene in Coventry. And that scene was bringing together black and white musicians, which at the time was like breaking new ground. In the show notes, we're going to put a ton of links, which we've been using to learn a bit more about Black England, Black Britain, and that is the George Padmore Institute and the Black Cultural Archives. Yeah, and look, speaking about brilliant black British voices, Jay Bernard in our episode Exploring New Cross, which is episode four, a powerful performance and their book surge is just astounding. It's incredible, yeah. And in episode eight, Craig also had a chat with Mame Blue. Oh yeah, she's awesome. Who is the author of the great novel Bad Love, the importance of getting all the stories, brilliant <laughs> the romance. romance. <laughs> and that was one of Jacaranda Books 20 in 2020, where they published 20 new works by black British writers. And look, finally, thanks to Registered Master Builder and Epidemic Sound for our music and SFX Connection, City Sounds, for our sound effects. To take us out, we asked Jacqueline, Steve and Nicola for a list of their must-read Black British authors. 
and we'll hear a beautiful reading from The Fat Lady Sings by the very excellent Sharmila from Speaking Volumes. We hope you're staying safe, being kind to yourself, and we hope you'll join us for our next adventure. I love the writing of David Dabidine. A particular favourite of mine is a novel called A Harlot's Progress, which looks at the slave trade in some really interesting and complex ways. It's a difficult book, but it's so worth reading, and I feel he's a really neglected author. Then there's also Jackie Kay. She's a poet, she's a novelist, she's written autobiography, non-fiction. She is just so versatile. Jackie Kay is Scottish, and I think it's really important to recognise that there are black people in Scotland as well. A lot of black British writing is very London-focused, almost inevitably, because there are more black people in London than there are in other parts of the country. The third writer is Ashley Hickson Lovance. He's an emerging voice, and his novel, The 392, is very oral. He takes on the voices of over 10 different people in a very short novel, and each character narrates part of the story on a fictitious bus route, The 392. Caleb Azuma Nelson wrote a book called Open Water, which is really, really brilliant. I'm very interested in the pre-Windrush history of black people in this country, because a lot of people think black British presence only started in 1948. Mm. But there's a historian on Yika, mm. but he wrote a book called Blackamoors, which is about the black Tudors. It's really well researched. It's just an excellent, excellent book. And the last one, I got a lot out of it when I read it. It's been renamed when it first came out, because I don't know what the new name is, and it didn't come out that long ago. It was called Kill the Black One First. Michael Fuller, who was the first black chief constable and so far the only black chief constable in the whole of England and Wales. Kill the Black One First actually came from when he was policing the Brixton riots. Somebody in the crowd recognised that he was black and it was a black person in the crowd said, kill the black one first. But it's definitely, definitely worth reading as a slice of recent history involving black people. My three favourite black British authors would be ABC Merriman Labour, Augustus Merriman Labour, who was a black writer living here in London over a hundred years ago, who wrote the classic comic novel, Britons Through Negro Spectacles. It's a story in a day, a novel over a day before Joyce's Ulysses, which shows a couple of educated black men walking around the streets of London and all the pleasant and unpleasant surprises they meet along the way. Also, Mike Phillips, here is someone who is exploring black identity through detective fiction. I'd also mention Joanna Trainer, who was also being published in the 90s, was looking at black mental health. Sister Josephine is an absolute classic. This reading is in the voice of Gloria, who is the fat lady in The Fat Lady Sings, and she's talking a bit about her family. Sometimes I forget I ever had a sister. Her name was Denise, and she was two years older than me. When I remember her, I think of the games we used to play. She could skip faster than any other child in the school. She was always picking on me because I was the slow one in the family. 
She would have got a scholarship, my father used to say, to some big school in England where they wear Panama hats and white gloves all year round and speak in a soft voice without moving the lips. She took sick back home, so she never got to see the mother country. Funny phrase, that. Britain gives the kind of mothering that would fetch the social workers in. Sometimes, just before I fall asleep, I remember walking through the streets to school, holding my father's hand as tight as tight can be and jumping over the pavement cracks in case I saw a bear. They had few single mothers at that time and never single fathers. He was not like other people. He never bothered following the crowd. He was a clever man who never got to use the gifts he had. I was never clever like him or Denise. I was in the remedial class. They couldn't understand the way I talked, so I had to learn proper English, but I never bothered learning right. You have to hold on to your true, true self in this country, no matter what they do to you. But I lost most of my Jamaica talk, you know, and picked up the English way with words. Couldn't help myself. This is what happens when you live in a place too long. My father learnt to speak the best English he could get because he thought that speaking patois held us back. But even when his words sounded better than a BBC announcer, he still couldn't get no decent job. He still had to work in a factory making Brillo pads. So I think education is not for black people. Don't matter how we try. And I don't care about 1066 or the Great Fire of London or dancing daffodils, so I never applied myself to learning. All my school reports said the same thing. Gloria does not apply herself. Never forgotten that. It depressed my father, but he never said much. He was always patient with me, even when I brought such disappointment to him. When I met Josie and everybody said it was a sin, he stood by me and told everyone it's not important who you love, it's the loving itself that counts. We went away when he died because it got too hard to stay. He'd be disappointed now that I've finished up in a place like this. You have to fight, he said, but not with fists, with your attitude to life. Rise above it, that was my father's favourite saying. He believed that one day we'll be important in this world as a people because we are so strong.